What is going on, my people? We are finally here. Got the pandemic, got the Zoom call, coming off a chaotic week in our country. I would say these are uh, perfect conditions to start a new ministry. Um, I get look forward to applying all the lessons I learned in seminary about preaching on Zoom calls in this empty room and uh, and leading a church in a strange time. But I trust God's with us and that He has brought us here. And uh, I can I've been telling a few people this week that getting to be your lead pastor is among the most tangible expressions of God's grace that uh, I think I've ever received in my life. And Chelsea and I were just reflecting on that last night. We get on our website to see my picture with the title lead pastor under it about every day, just to pinch ourselves and say like, it happened, we're, we're here now. Um, and so uh, it's not a position I take lightly, but with great reverence and, and awe. And, uh, and I'm celebrating that we are already growing because my parents and my in-laws are on the call. So look at us, man, it's already being fruitful. Uh, praise God for that. Um, so uh, when I start every sermon, I start with some silence. And so it's awkward to do that in your room with a Zoom call, but it would be a practice that I'd wanna continue uh, once we're preaching and we're in together in person, just to take a quick moment of silence to remember that the spirit of God is with us, is in our hearts, is in our minds, that he dwells within our bodies. And because of that, he is always ready to be transforming us. And so to let our spirits catch up to our bodies in this room, in this space, at this moment in time, ready to receive his love. So let's just take a moment of silence to breathe and remember that he is with us right now. Lord God, we do indeed trust that you are here and that because you are here, your presence is transformative, that you're ready to move in us at all times, to encourage us, to challenge us, to remind us of who we are and whose we are. And so we open our hands to receive whatever you have for us today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart always be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as I mentioned in the West Weekly, uh, we're going to be doing a series in Philippians, and I've had great comfort as I've read the letters uh, from Paul um, throughout this pandemic, as Paul is separated from his uh, people, the churches that he loves deeply, and he has to rely on the only technology available to him at that time, writing a letter to overcome that gap of space in order to communicate to churches whom he loves. And so that's what we're facing now as well. We're separated by space from the people we love deeply. And yet through technology, we can still overcome that gap to be reminded of the, of the truth of the gospel and how God is ready to impact our lives in that uh, right now. And so I'm gonna split this, uh, Philippians, the book of Philippians into a few diff three different sections. And this first section for the first five weeks is gonna be on healthy foundations of the church, just picking up on some themes in chapters one and two of healthy foundations of, of church practice and belief. And today I'm excited to talk about our humble dependence on God. And so let's read just from verses one and two to kind of get us going. Let me see if I can share my screen. Your boy learning how to do some technology here this morning. Is that working? Y'all see a screen? It's blank, ain't it? It's working though. There better be some text up there. So let's read from Philippians uh, 1 verses 1 and 2. 
It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So normally when you're reading alone and you come across these two verses, you see a lot of Christian language and speech and probably jump over this pretty quickly to get to the rest of the passage and the meat of the passage. Paul starts almost every letter in similar fashion, but there's so much packed in here that reflects uh, Paul's trust in Jesus and the recognition that this church is humbly dependent upon him. And one of the things I wanna note though, is that when you read a letter, sometimes it's hard for us to grasp this. When we sit in the comfort of our homes, if you're like me, man, you got the sweatpants, the house shoes, warm cup of coffee, you're real cozy reading this on bleached white pages, well-ordered print, and you imagine that, and it's in the context of a whole big thick Bible that's nice and leather bound with shiny outside pages. And you can almost imagine and detach this from a, a reality in which it was embedded. But in reality, you're reading, we're reading right now someone else's mail. And that mail was written from one side to another in the context of a relationship and a story. And so what I want to do is as we read these two verses, my question is, how did this church get here to where this group of people could be called saints in Christ Jesus? They have leaders, they have overseers and deacons, they're remembering grace and peace that came from none other than Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And their founders refer to themselves as servants or slaves of this recently crucified and resurrected man. How did this church get to this point? And conveniently for us, we know the answer to that question to a degree because the story of the, how this church started was in Acts, in Acts 16. And so my goal is to, to look at uh, Acts 16 a little bit and recognize that when you look at how the church got from the way that it started to where it is now where Paul is writing this letter, that it came by nothing other than an open-handed dependence on God's provision. So that's the, the first foundation we're going to talk about, dependence on God's provision for our formation, that the church is ultimately God's church. Every church is ultimately God's church and exists only by dependence on his grace and on his provision. And you would think that that should be obvious, right? That we don't exist if not for what God has done uh, through Christ. But it's so easy for the human hearts, for Christians to forget um, how we got to where we got and to start detaching from the ways of God, detaching from his provision. And it's easy for us. Uh, I think especially when you've recently experienced more tangible evidence of his provision. So with us having a newly pastor, having a building, things that you can see that look like uh, kind of resources that have a, a human strength to it, that can start to lead you to believe that you're secure uh, without God. Um, but then I look at the ways in which Christians and churches can oftentimes kind of... Uh, devolve into relying on human strength and taking on human means to try to grab control and advance by their own strength. And uh, that oftentimes comes as a result of the church failing to remember its dependence on God. And honestly, um, if you're like me, your mind's probably been weighed down by the events at the Capitol um, this week. And there's so much to lament and to grieve and to respond in prayer to those events. Uh, but for me, the thing that grieves my heart the most is seeing Jesus's name attached to the violence. 
not only I expect human beings to respond with violence, I expect human beings to seek to take control of their own destiny and control the future for their own sake. But what it grieves me is when people attach the name of Jesus to it. And I saw flags, huge flags that said Jesus. I saw huge flags that say Jesus saves. And it's such a, it grieves my heart to witness the connection between a God who loved and served the world by giving up his very life and serving out of humility to die for this world, uh, to see that that name get co-opted for the sake of violence and control uh, motivated by fear. And so it seems like that is a result to a, to a degree of a church that has lost its sense of dependence on God's provision. And so what I want to do is look at the origin of the Philippian church and see how um, God's hand was providing for them every step of the way, and how that impacted the means by which that church was formed and, and impacted the effects of how they spoke about their posture and their identity. And so first, let's talk about how the church's dependence on God impacted that the way the church was formed. And so if we look in Acts 16, it start, the whole story starts with a call from God that Paul has a dream, a vision, in which uh, a, a person from Macedonia appears to him and says, come to Macedonia and help us. And Paul wakes up from his dream, and he discerns, I love that text says something like, uh, and we concluded that God probably wanted us to go to Macedonia. Yes, yes, Sherlock, he did indeed tell you that, because he came to you in a vision and told you. But what's wild is they'd listened to the call that it started with an open-handed obedience to do what God asked them to do. And it's wild to me how in my own life, how quickly we can just start to do church and do church life in the Christian life just by kind of doing what we want to do, what seems right to us, what seems like the way to go. But it's evident that the founders of the Philippian church started with an open-handedness to ask God what he wanted them to do and then doing it simple uh, an, an openness to the spirit of Jesus to do what they wanted to do. And even though that answering that call had before led to suffering and difficulty for Paul, he still chose to obey it. And so they did. They chose to go to Macedonia and to preach the gospel to the first city they arrived to in that place, which is Philippi. And so I want to reflect right now on how this impacts when we rely on God and not ourselves and the way we do church, it starts with that open-handed ask, God, how do you want me to serve today? God, what do you want us as a church to do today? And then when he asks us to do something that is uncomfortable, that is different, that might be weird, we choose to obey it. That is a reflection that we are doing church and doing our faith and living that out, out of a spirit of dependence on God, not at the spirit of doing it ourselves. And so that starts with a simple practice that is hidden and unseen, that we open our hands before the Lord in private and as a community, asking him to lead us and to do what he asks us to do. And so they obeyed that call and praise God that they did to take the gospel to Philippi. And then once they get there, if you were relying on human strength to start a new organization, what you would do is go to the center of the city to attach yourself to a person of power or people of influence who are recognized and known. And you would start with them and try to get them on your team. You would start with the, the, the people who have the resources, who have the influence, who have the, the equity in the city. And if you can just piggyback onto their power, 
you can then use that to build your brand new fledgling organization. But that's not what Paul and his companions do. It says that in Acts 16, that they go to the outskirts of the city to find a little group of praying women, because there was no group of Jews large enough to form a traditional synagogue. You would need 10 men in a city to have an official synagogue. And it's evident Philippi, as a Roman colony, did not have that, but instead it had just a little group of women praying to the Jewish God. And Paul locks in on one by the name of Lydia. And this woman is a marginalized woman. The one thing she had going for that wouldn't be marginalized is that she, it says, was a seller of purple cloth. So there, there's some wealth there to be able to sell purple cloth. But this woman is not who you'd want to start with for three reasons. First, she's the wrong gender. That in the first century, men were the ones who had all the power. Women could not have any rights on their own other than the rights and protections that would be afforded to them by their attachments to the men in their lives either their husbands or even their sons. They would need to have that in order to have some kind of rights or protections. And even women were so marginalized that their voice would not count in court. To, their testimony would not be given any validity as a witness in court. And yet Paul goes to this woman who is, in this case, the wrong gender. And not only she's the wrong gender, but she's the wrong marital status. So she's a single woman is who Paul starts with in the city. Like I said, not only were women in themselves did not have any rights or protections or privileges or any kind of power, social power, but it attaches to a man. So for a woman that is not married, it said it has no mention of her husband along the way. She either must have been a widow or her husband had left her but that is a, an absence of social power. And yet Paul starts with her and she's the wrong ethnicity. She's not even a Jewish person. It would have been ideal for Paul to start with a Jewish woman and kind of lead her to the gospel first, so a Jewish person. But instead this woman, Lydia, was a Greek person who just feared the Lord and prayed to the Jewish God. And that is the foundation of all Christianity in Europe. The first Christian convert was this woman named Lydia, but she believed and God and Paul uh, took her faith seriously and the foundation of that church started with her. But now by the time Paul's writing this letter from a prison in Ephesus, probably three to six years after the church begins, he's able to write to all the saints in Philippi that somehow from this one marginalized woman that God uh, intervene to provide for that church's formation to add saints to their number. It goes from this one marginalized woman named Lydia to all the saints in Philippi. And one of the things I want to note for us then is that when we are a church that depends on God's ways, not the world's ways, on God's strength, not whatever strength we can muster up as human beings, we will pay attention to the marginalized voices to lead the way not just to be people that receive our love and our service, that receive our charity, people we look to as objects that we can love. No, no, no. Looking to marginalized people to sometimes lead the way, to show us what it means to be faithful, to show us, teach us things about Jesus that we could not and would not learn otherwise. That the God who, who has bled and died for us is a God who has always worked with and through surprising people every step of the way. And so this doesn't start with who we look to in official positions of leadership, though it may get there. What it starts with is that each person on this call chooses to look with eyes to see 
the people that oftentimes are not paid attention to in the world, they don't have a huge following, they don't have a ton of resources, they don't have a great resume, but they might know the Lord and be able to influence us. And so for me, um, a few years back at the church that I was just at in Cincinnati, we were needing to hire a janitor. And we received this resume from a good a dude who ended up becoming a good friend of mine named Dwayne Rawls. And Dwayne had a crazy life. He had been strung out on crack for like 20 years battling that addiction and had just been clean for about two years. Um, he's a black man. He was uh, single. He had very little money. He was relied on uh, welfare, um, a little bitty humble apartment. Um, and it's just not fit the mold of a person that you would want leading. He had no education. Um, and yet by just being with him all the time, I saw God in unique ways from him. I feel like seeing the way God works through a recovering addict and the hopefulness and the prayerfulness that, with which he led life and would mop our floors while belting hymns that echoed off the walls in our hallways and stuff. But he, he was able to teach me things about God that I can't learn from a book, that I can't learn from a person with power because he knows what it means to depend on the Lord. He talked about all the time what it meant to uh, begin his prayers to the Lord before his feet even hit the floor in the morning because he knew he could not survive without that. He taught me that. And so people that are marginalized that you may not pay attention to to lead us, that you may not first think about to put in a leadership position are the ones who, when you pay attention to them, they end up being the ones that have, the, have good ideas that the spirit is ready to do a new thing through. He led events for us. He brought people to the church. Um, he influenced people that he came across. And so if we begin with asking the question, not who has the resources we can attach to and find strength in, but who might God teach something new to us through? What kind of people that are often rejected or not paid attention to have something to show us from children to people in poverty, to people that are of a different racial background than us, to uh, people that are just in our neighborhoods that seem to have no social influence, but have something to say, paying attention to those people reflects that we are depending on God and not human strength uh, to flourish. And so he, Paul, uh, church in Philippi starts with this one marginalized woman and grows to all the saints in Philippi. The next thing I want to talk about is when you look at the origins of this church, it starts with just these spiritual infants, people who had never heard the gospel. And so after Paul speaks to uh, Lydia and she gets converted, her whole household gets baptized. It's not long after that, that uh, Paul is annoyed by a slave girl who's possessed by a demon in Philippi, and he uh, performs an exorcism on her and her masters who used her to make money um then seized paul and took him before the courts and threw him in jail where he was beaten and flogged uh pretty severely it says and then he breaks uh they pray to the lord and the lord breaks them out of jail and the jailer is converted on the way out and then paul and his friends just go pray for the church and then they leave this is not how you plant a church if you go to church planting conferences read read a church planting book they will not tell you, hey, man, just get a few conversions and then bail out of town. But that's pretty much what happened in Philippi. By the time Paul and his companions are like, All right, we're off to the next place. They are, there's a few margin, a few a young Christians, baby Christians that are the marginalized people in the town, a few women and a jailer. And then just from that place, 
God forms these people from those spiritual infants to being mature enough to where there are overseers and deacons. Those are uh, titles of church leadership at that time. Overseers and deacons are there basically just by God's formation that when the spirit of the God is alive and when he moves, he brings life and he brings maturity and he forms people. And so the spirit of God was in these people and he formed them in uh, spiritual maturity to be such that they were reflecting God's character and reflecting his values and reflecting his ways to the point that they could identify even some among those mature Christians, maturing Christians, to be overseers and deacons in the church. And I just want to note that when you, we are experiencing that kind of dependence on God, God moves. That if you ask God to help you grow in the faith, to help you grow in spiritual maturity, he will do it. And he will form us all toward that direction of spiritual maturity. And some among those maturing believers will be qualified enough to become leaders in the church, not by virtue of their own strength, not because they read all the books, not because they uh, accomplished something on their own, but because God worked in them to form them and, and equip them to be that, to be overseers and deacons. And it's worth just noting here that, uh, the, the presence of official leadership and order in the church. I think sometimes we imagine that a spirit-led church is very open and just kind of flowing, but the early church did not function that way. The early church often uh, quickly installed kind of order and leadership structures in order to give life to the church and not have things so scattered and chaotic. And so when you look at the origins of the church shown in Acts 16, we see that, they, that the founders, Paul and his companions, were obedient to God's call with an open hand, that they started and trusted that God can move and work in anybody, even Lydia, a marginalized woman and a jailer, and from that, those few people can jump to all the saints in Philippi, and that this, depending on this God, he will grow us. He will grow us in the faith. He will grow us in his character to the point that some among us will be able to lead and guide the church as overseers and deacons. And so it, depending on God impacts the way we do church, the way we form the church that is open-handed in prayer, that seeks his leadership and guidance in all people, even surprising people, and it, it leads to that kind of spiritual maturity. The next thing I want to talk about is how this forms our language. So the church's dependence on God is shown here and how Paul speaks about, just in these two verses in Philippians, Christian identity and our posture. And so when Paul identifies himself, note of all the things he entitles he could pull from to talk about himself, he identifies himself as a slave of Christ. He doesn't identify himself by his education, his vocation, by what he possesses, by his family ties, by his Jewish ties, by whom he learned from. His core identity is being a slave to Christ. That is how he attaches himself to as a slave. And I know that the translation I originally read from said servant, but the true word is, is a slave, one who has total allegiance and debt to uh, their master. And Paul speaks of himself in that way as a slave of Christ. And the identity of his audience that he writes to is all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now this word saints, normally, that word would be reserved for Christians, like the way we would use the word saints. 
we reserve it for Christians whom we see as like uh, reaching some level of performance, that they've done something special in the faith. And the Catholic Church has an official way to kind of like kind of call and make a person a saint if they've kind of been a really, really extravagantly faithful person. And like we may even joke, I jokingly call people a saint when they do something really good for me. I think I've called Joe Garner a saint like 90 times for all the work he's done in my house. I think I called Angie uh, Smith a saint yesterday as well. And she's like, no, no, not me. No, Paul writes and says, all people that are in Christ are saints. It's just the noun word for the, uh, for the adjective holy. And that just by virtue of receiving the Lord in your life, you are called a saint. You are made holy by him. That is now your identity is a holy one. Right then and there has nothing to do with your behavior, has nothing to do with, uh, with your performance, with your improvements, with your Christian growth. It has to do with the fact that God has acted in your life. You depended on him and he made you holy. Now, as soon as he calls you holy, calls you a saint, he immediately starts working in you to help reflect that holiness in your behavior, which is an up and down process, as you know. But what I want to note here is that is who you are now. You are a saint in Christ Jesus. You're not identified by your relationships, by your marital status, by your race, by your sexuality, by your political allegiances, by what you possess, by what you own, by what you've done. You are identified by as a saint in Christ Jesus that he has bled and died for you, and by that giftedness has made you holy. And that you are, we are all in Christ. That also is Christian language that we probably read all the time, but it reflects that we are totally bound up into Christ's body. We are in his body and, and represent him as we walk around and move about our lives. And so when we are dependent on God, we resist all temptations to attach our identity to more tangible things that reflect human strength, or that could uh, give us the lie of some kind of human safety or human security. And I think that temptation was on display on Wednesday for Christians um, that participated in the, the riots. And I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, um, a concern that I witness across churches that there's a temptation to identify first by what political party or political beliefs we have and not first as Christians. We need to let our identity as Christians shape how we engage in other identities, including how we engage in politics, as opposed to doing the other way around. When we rely on Jesus first to shape our identity, that shapes how we engage with everything else as we hold it with open hands loosely and reflect his humble, self-sacrificial love and what we're doing. I realize I'm talking about those events quite a bit, and I keep naming, man, the awkwardness of it. Like, the first Sunday, I'm not trying to step on any landmines, but at the same time, that I cannot go without talking about that as a pastor. I feel like I would forsake my call as a pastor to not uh, spend time reflecting on how we are called to engage and respond to that kind of thing. And so um, I just want to issue that uh, challenge to us to find our identity in Jesus first, and that shapes how we can engage and love people that are different than us in every way. So Paul speaks about our identity and, and, and shapes and lets that kind of lead the charge in shaping how we engage with everything else and reflects that church's dependence on God. 
Then he has this little line that is common for him. It says, grace to you. It's a normal greeting for him. And that reflects our open-handed posture as dependent Christians to receive God's grace. That this is a customary greeting that Paul used, that no one else used, that Paul uses, to reflect that all that we have in this life is a gift from him. Grace is the sum total of all of God's activity for us as a giving God, as a God who pours out generously to his children. And it is by grace that he has made it possible for us to even be a church at all. The grace of his son, Jesus, to be given in his, his whole life on the cross and to be raised from the dead, that has made it possible for us to receive. And so grace becomes the way we do all church. And our then posture is not to take control, to overtake, to accomplish, to perform, to uh, lead the charge, to be, to take control, but instead an open-handed posture to receive whatever God wants to give us as his church. And so he says grace to you to remind his people that all that we have is dependent on Christ's gift to us. And then he says uh, there's an open-handed posture to release a sum total of all of of the effects of God in our lives is peace. He says, peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And yesterday, uh, I ran into Angie when she was painting my house when I wasn't even knowing she was going to do this. And we were in this conversation and she started uh, just throwing down a little mini sermon about the peace of God. And I'm like, hey, you got anything to do tomorrow? Maybe you should preach this sermon for me <laughs> because it sounded really good what she had to say. But this kind of peace from God is not a, a, a tranquility. It's not a... Uh, a calm external circumstances but it's a peace that we are made right between us and God and that as we are made right between us and God he empowers us to make peace with our neighbors and overcome major gaps of division and violence and because of the possibility of peace with God we then have this internal sense of confidence and restraint in our souls that we are so content with what we have in God, that we are able to release control of all things in this life, releasing control of the future of our church, releasing control of our own future in our own lives, releasing control of the future of our country, releasing control of all the things that we would wish to control and wish to preserve and wish to make kind of do what we wanted to do. But when we receive the peace from God that we know we are right with him, if we have that, everything else can be released with an open hand because everything else is a gift on top of that. And so we see then a posture that is made possible miraculously that in this chaotic world where a virus reigns, where there is violence around, where there is division, you can have a little pocket of unknown, uh, not popular, not a high social platform, maybe not a ton of money, but a little pocket of community that knows what it means to live in this world generously provided for by God, that knows what it means to receive everything from him and be content with that and to function with peace. What does it then look like when this little community that is asking God with an open hand to lead us, that clings to him to define our identity, that looks to him to receive everything in this world as grace, that functions with a sense of contentment and peace in our souls. How does it then look then when we bump shoulders with our neighbors who are overwhelmed by the anxiety and fear in our culture and in our world to then recognize that it is possible because of what Christ has done for us 
to function in this world with a spirit of peace and patience and grace and self-sacrificial love. It is made possible by being a church that knows whose we are, that we are God's and we our existence is only made possible by his self-giving and self-sacrificial love. And we know our future is in his hands. Therefore, we can function with open-handedness, with looseness, knowing that the future is his. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we confess the weirdness and awkwardness of Zoom church, of, of being worn out by a pandemic, of being um, nervous and anxious about what we see around us in this country. And But we remind ourselves, we, we choose to receive a reminder from your spirit, Lord, that we are yours, that you have died for us and bled for us and made us your children, that you have formed us as a community to give us everything we need, that by grace you have gifted us all things. And we receive that peace, that newfound identity, and this new existence as a church by the power of your spirit, by the gift of your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we remember this uh, fact of our dependence on God each week as we celebrate communion. And that's when we remember that the Lord has uh, shown his love for us in embodied form, that the most important thing that could ever happen in history has happened. When God became a man in Jesus Christ, when he bled a violent and gruesome death in order to overcome that, to show that no matter what could ever happen in this world, our future is in his hands because he has risen from the dead. And so if you have communion with you, communion elements, go ahead and get those out. Now, I like to always introduce communion by reading from the way Paul instituted the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, because it's a gift from him, from God, he broke it and said, this is my body, that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you look backwards to remember and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and we wait on that time in the future. So feel free to take your communion now as we remember and celebrate what God has made possible in us.